0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host on Disrupt TV for the next hour. Disrupt TV is a weekly show where we invite some of our best and brightest spot leaders to talk about innovation, leadership, business models, and industry trends. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter using hashtag Disrupt TV. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live. Uh, using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's uh, my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder, CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and he's working on his second book, I just found out, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he is uh, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, uh, to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. My awesome co-host, Bala Ashar. And if you know who he is, he's actually one of the top CIO and CMO follows on social at V-A-L-A-A-F-S-H-A-R. Also a top uh, blogger before for Huffington Post, now for ZDNet, and more importantly, author himself. But today we're talking about some awesome topics for episode 112, talking about healthcare. Who do we've got on the panel? Some all-star yeah. star cast, I think.
0: It is a StarCast, and uh, today we're going to talk about healthcare innovation, disruptive models, and emerging technologies. And we start with our first guest, uh, David Chow, who is the Vice President, Chief Information and Digital Officer for Children, Children's uh, Mercy Kansas City. Children's Mercy is the only freestanding children's hospital between St. Louis and Denver, in providing comprehensive care for patients from birth to 21. They're consistently ranked among the leading children's hospitals in the nation. Prior to Children's uh, Mercy, David held the CIO position at University of Mississippi Medical Center, the state's only academic health science center. His work has been recognized by several publications. I personally have written a bunch of stories uh, uh, collaborating with David, and he's been interviewed by a number of media outlets. He's one of the most mentioned, in fact, maybe the most mentioned CIO on social media, is an active member of both Chime and Hymns. He's a must-follow on Twitter, at dchou1107. Welcome, David, to Disrupt TV. Welcome back, David, to Disrupt TV.
2: Thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to the chat today. We have some great folks joining us, so excited for the discussion.
0: Yeah, no, I'm really
1: excited. And let's talk a little bit about you, though, real quickly, as we jump in. I want to know about this chief digital officer and CI role, because in a lot of organizations, like it's the CDO reporting the CIO, the CIO reporting the CDO. But you've got both. And what does that purview mean for uh, for you and your role?
2: So that's spot on in terms of your observation rate. I was trying to just prevent that to begin with. I didn't want to walk into <laughs> the organization and have a CDO jump in. So... What did I do? Create both titles and get the both roles. But here's my observation of where every CIO and technology leader needs to think about, we're all digital leaders. We should all strive to create business models utilizing technology. So the title really shouldn't matter anymore. If you're a CIO, you should be out there creating digital business models utilizing technology. Think about how you could help your organization maximize that investment, especially when I think about healthcare in general in the hospital setting. The biggest department, the department has the biggest budget is IT. So with that being said, you need to understand how can you maximize that investment and help the organizations be successful. Because if you can't, what's going to happen is these chief digital officer roles starts popping up and they start popping up from outside the healthcare vertical, which there's pros and cons there. But what happens is they may not be able to speak the language, but your CEO thinks he's brought in the savior coming in to solve this digital problem while the CIO just maintains the light. So I think that's a word of caution for all fellow CIOs in the industry. And that was my playbook when I arrived at Children's Mercy to make sure I put the stamp on the fact that I want to main, be involved with all technology decisions and lead the digital experience for the entire organization. God, Nicholas Carr was
1: so wrong. IT is not dead,
0: all right? <laughs> no, no. You know, four or five years ago, you was less than 100. CDO titles on LinkedIn. I think there's over 3,000 chief digital officers. So it's smart for you to to, uh, think about transformation, digital transformation as a key function in IT and combining that role. Um, So now the expectations at your hospital is not just information technology, but digital transformation across uh, the entire ecosystem. So there's a stronger emphasis in terms of change management. How do you facilitate change management and help folks transition to a more digital approach? And I'm assuming when we talk about digital, it's your mobile, your social, there's radical transparency in terms of how you share data. Ultimately, all aimed at improving the, the stakeholder experience, the physicians, the caregivers, the patients themselves. And so on and so forth.
2: It's very hard. I mean, the hardest mm-hmm. part about this job is the people side, and <laughs> I struggled for a year and a half just getting alignment on, on the departments. So when I walked in, there's over ten different IT departments. Think about that. People had their own budget design, authority. People can buy technology. People can do what they want, and all of a sudden, they throw it over the fence and say, "Oh, we bought the software. Now you have to support it." So it took me a year and a half to consolidate the organizations to start thinking organization-wise, let me put together the right governance model, not to restrict you from going fast, but to help you set the stage, to put together the right platform, to ultimately put together the right resources so that we can all focus on the same objective. So that was what I had to do the first year and a half. We finally got it done with the board's approval of having a consolidated organization under myself in terms of leading all technology acquisition and um, projects. So that was part of the change management. And now we're going through this phase of let's optimize and let's transform. Forget about digital transform, uh, digital transformation, we're transforming just operationally, changing how we, we operate four years ago to a new era. You now, Something as simple as how a clinician workflow, you know, we we're re that all the way across the entire organization, ranging from revenue cycle all the way down to the bill drop. So you know, part of that transformation is often, obviously involves technology and that's where we're coming in play. Um, internally within the department I'm focusing on two themes and every project that we're doing has these two themes of number one helping the organization do things faster so speed is one theme, and the second is experience now what is it that we can provide the best experience for both externally the patients but also internal workforce because you gotta remember your internal workforce needs to have a great experience now one of the running jokes that people throw out there and sadly kind of true is when you go home you're, you have all kinds of innovation around your house. When you come to the technology, you're probably 10 or 15 years behind. So we're we'll trying to really prevent that from happening. And how do you create that best experience both internally with your workforce and externally? So those are the two things I focus on. Those are
0: great, those are great themes. So, you know, in order to be fast and smart and, and deliver personalized service, you obviously need to start with uh, a robust IT infrastructure. So our, our next guest, Sandy Aronson is Executive Director of IT for Partners Healthcare Personalized Medicine. His team develops IT infrastructure required to support the evolution and practice of genetic-based personalized medicine in both patient-facing and laboratory settings. So he has, you know, two major stakeholders that he has to serve uh, he's the founder of Gene Insight. Sandy's also co chair of displaying and integrating generic information through EHR, initially organized under the Institute of Medicine, now part of FHIR Foundation. You can follow Sandy on Twitter at SANDYARONSON. Welcome, Sandy, to Disrupt TV.
1: Thanks. Really happy to be here.
0: <laughs> great to have you.
1: Hey, Sandy, great to have you again. We had your healthcare Transformation Summit along with David. Um, so questions for you really start at this point, as we're at the beginning of a healthcare revolution uh, that IT needs to be aware of and to support. What are those forces that people should be thinking about, both on the technology side and on the business side?
3: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree that we're at the beginning, we're, we're potentially at the beginning of a very significant revolution. It's, it's being driven by a number of different things. So you've got new kinds of data that are becoming available to the healthcare system in the form of much more robust use of genetics and genomics, more real thinking about how devices, both consumer-facing wearables and in-hospital devices can generate new forms of data that can help us really better understand and manage the process of treating disease. So you've got new data coming online. At the same time, you have and it is in the very early stages but you have the movement towards algorithmic-based care being driven in some ways largely by excitement about um, machine learning, but it's it's much broader than that, where for the first time we can really look at moving multidimensional um, clinical decision support to the point of care. While those two things are going on, we also have, and it's interesting to think about this one, we have more, so I've been in in, my position and um, earlier forms of my position for the last 15 years. And I have never seen as much emphasis on cost containment as I'm seeing now. It's always been there, but it's at an entirely new level. So this focus on cost control in one way constrains internal resources, but in another way, it makes folks fundamentally less resistant to change because they have to change. So you've got this world where you've got these confluence of factors coming together that could allow real transformation in healthcare. But one of the things that typically holds us back is the challenge associated with building the IT to enable the process transformations. So I think our ability to get really good at enabling what what has to be IT-supported process change is going to determine, you know, how positively these forces come together and affect the healthcare in the future.
0: You know, as I talk to business leaders, more and more, there's a realization that the most important skill in a uh, age of the connected, in this case, patients, connected customers, is for businesses, organizations to stay teachable, to maintain that beginner's mindset, to experiment and evolve, to meet the ever-growing expectations of, of consumers, customers, patients in this scenario so so what is needed uh, to increase this mov- movement towards broad-based continuous learning in the healthcare system how do you and your IT organization evolve at a rate that requires uh, organizations in order not only, not only to stay relevant but also deliver to the expectation and the customer experience that that's required for, for today
3: yeah it's really interesting so you can think about that question on a couple of different levels so At at the base level, a lot of this comes down to, I mean, in some ways, the the challenge is prioritizing change, right? Because nearly every clinician in our environment has has an idea on how processes could be fundamentally refactored in a way that would produce better results. The problem is, in this world where a lot of that is coming based on ideas related to algorithmic-based care, related to new data, As I mentioned before, it all requires IT support. So it's figuring out how you can prioritize and build as much of that IT support as possible so that those transformations can happen. So that's one level. But then you've got this other level, which is where I think the real continuous learning um, healthcare process comes into play, which is what you really want to be doing is you want to build infrastructure that will allow you to collect the data that is required in order to continuously improve the decisions that you make in that process itself. And the way that you do that is you actually have to really support, typically what happens is IT support is built as general in, a, in as generalizable as way as possible with the intent of not impairing a doctor from doing anything that they want to do. But we really have to step beyond that in cases where it's appropriate, where guidelines have really been established to really support processes in much more depth because when we do that, we we can collect far cleaner data and then we can use that data to continuously analyze what patients we should treat in in what ways. I think that's the core of continuous learning.
0: That makes makes a lot of sense. So uh, our our next guest to add to this uh, rich conversation is Wes Wright, Chief Technology Officer at Improvata. West is responsible for leading and global technology strategy while providing technical leadership across all areas of the company's overall business plan and strategic vision. He retired as a major in the U.S. Air Force and then started his career as chief technology officer and chief information officer at Scripps Health. And then, uh, you know, uh, needing some sunshine, I guess, he moved mm-hmm. to Sacramento, California to be the CTO of Sutter Health. Uh, prior to his current role. You can follow Wes on Twitter at WESWRIGHT19. And uh, not the 12th man, but one of the five today. <laughs> Welcome, Wes, to the show. <laughs> yeah, if you well, binary, you know he's the 12th man. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
4: So the, the folks that can see me on TV, this is uh, from my friends at ExerHop back in 2013 when the Seahawks were, I was at Seattle Children's, as CTO at that time. And the Seahawks uh, actually won the Super Bowl that year, and ExtraHawk printed out a 12th Man t-shirt. So this is 12, so it says 12 man, but it's in binary i not getting any geekier than that. I don't, you got it. You got it. We all, <laughs> we all get it. I think most of our audience
1: gets it. Most too. of our audience probably gets it. That. So that's awesome. Hey, Wes, you know, you were at our Healthcare Transformation Summit as well uh, in Las Vegas uh, a few few months back. Uh, actually, yeah, it was a few months back. Um, but you were talking about something that was very, very important. I mean, if we think about it, there's 175 million IOT installs by 2020, based on our data, and the question is: This stuff is all sitting around, and like, wow, if you look at old WHO data as well, you can see that you know most most places, most countries don't even have standards on these devices, how they connect with each other, how they communicate, and so this is a very interesting issue. So, what's the cocktail needed to secure a lot of these biomedical and IOT devices? And has anyone been hacked yet?
4: Oh yeah. Uh- Lots of places have been hacked yet. I bet we hear about 20%. It's the old 80-20 rule. We hear about 20% of the 100% that got hacked, and the 80% uh, we don't hear about. But it's interesting that you use the word uh, cocktail in in this. Uh, I was having a discussion, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half ago with somebody about this at the end of a conference. And they said, hey, how are we going to secure our biomedical equipment? And I said, I don't know. Uh, I think it's going to take a cocktail. And I meant it's time to go get a beer, and we will talk about it. But the person I was talking to actually thought I had a cocktail all cooked up in my head, so I had to think on my feet and did actually come up with a cocktail. There's some new products that have come on the market probably within the last two years. Uh, One of them I baited when I was at uh, Sutter Health. is called Cloud Post. There's four other products, Uh, Cloud Post, Zingbox, Armis, and Assimile, I think. That finally, for the very first time ever in my health IT career, I can tell exactly what's on my network, not just, uh, hey, there's a computer running Windows, or here's a Mac and an IP. It's not a computer running Windows, or it's not a computer running Linux. We can tell you that much. But I can actually see what medical device is on my network, what it's connected to, what it's talking to, should it be talking to it. So that's the first part. I think of that, that the, the discovery part, pretty much is the glass that holds the rest of the cocktail, frankly. Because without discovery, without you knowing what's on your network, and we haven't had that knowledge prior to this plethora of products that made, made their debut in the last couple of years. So once we get to know what's on the network, well, now you need to lock them down. One of the things I was excited about uh, going to Ambravada, and I didn't even know when I went there, frankly, is we uh, Improvado was developing a badge tap for medical equipment, mm-hmm. so uh, with Welch Allen, and we're just starting in our, our infusion pumps too, because most of those are left open because patient safety—you don't want to be trying to put a username and password in there when when there's an emergent issue. So most of those are,
1: <laughs> most <laughs> Oops, those forgot are, my password. Oops, forgot yeah. password.
4: Oops, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want I don't want the nurse I don't want the nurse him or her fooling with their username and password when they're ingesting my infusion pump. So those. Those were generally left open, but now Improvada has developed uh, with the manufacturers. We're developing, and there's a long list of equipment that we're developing to tap in, tap out. So you can actually leave the equipment uh, secured and, and, and get to it really quickly. So you lock it down, but there's always going to be some equipment uh, that you think is super, super high valuable. So you've got Cloud Post to hold your glass, Improvada to uh, maybe add a little of the uh refreshment to it and then finally uh, a, a small outfit called tempered networks which has really gone into the ie uh, ieee approved hip protocol yep um so you can use uh, uh thanks for this last uh, host ip protocol uh from from uh, a tempered network and put a, a host ip dongle on one side of your piece of medical equipment and then in your closet you Uh, plug that into another host IP switch, and then your host IP switch goes into your major chassis. The cool thing about that is it completely disappears from the network. Everything that knows it's there and knows its correct name and IP address can talk to it, but anybody who's doing a port scan or, or any kind of trying to do reconnaissance on your network completely doesn't know that equipment exists. So it... I'm really a best of sweet kind of guy. Um, but in this particular instance, I think just because the technology is so new for us, it, it's really going to take a cocktail to solve this problem.
0: And- <laughs> Here. I think this is the first time we've had a tech bartender on our show. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's
1: a mixologist. It's a mixologist <laughs> yeah. big time.
0: I love it. I love it. So, you know, Wes, you heard, uh, you heard uh, David talk about speed and experience mm-hmm. as the two pillars that drive his mission and, and and investment thesis. You heard Sandy talk about the algorithmic economy, advanced analytics, use of machine learning, and really prioritizing and mm-hmm. really bringing intelligence into IT and how we serve our stakeholders. So what do you believe the healthcare IT operation vision and model should be? Mm-hmm. Given the fact that it seems like the currency in a digital economy is speed, personalization, and intelligence.
4: Yeah, um, you know, there's a uh, when I was at Sutter and every place I've been, you know, you go in, you do your, your hey, this is me kind of brief. And the part of this is me kind of brief is how I believe health information technology can can help healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe it's uh, for HIT folks. Our number one, our number one mission in life should be to make uh, make technology as transparent as possible to our clinical and business partners Uh, they didn't come into healthcare to be it folks Uh, so we need to make the uh, technology as frictionless as possible and i think the way we do that and i stole this from satya uh, but i think he also got it wrong a little bit Uh, Mm -hmm. it's not just mobile first cloud first Uh, for healthcare we're still at the stage where you have to put virtual in there so it's virtual cloud mobile um, because we're still we're still at a place where uh, we need to put some emphasis on on virtual. Um, but you so make technology transparent to our clinical and business users using uh, a virtual cloud mobile first. But the work philosophy is something I call QS S four. So quality, the IHI definition, the six definitions of quality for the IHI, which include uh, accessibility, affordability, all those. That is supported totally by HIT in three areas in this manner. First, stability. You gotta have your applications have got to be stable. Again, your clinicians wanna see uh, patients. They don't wanna mess with technology. If your technology is not stable, your clinicians are messing with technology. Second, it's gotta be secure. Uh, Hackers don't like anything better than a stable, non-secure app, because then they can go to that trough anytime they want. And then finally, what David mentioned in his his preamble there is speed. And it used to be when I first developed this model in my head, I call it QS4. When I first developed this model in my head, speed was all about the speed of compute. Yep. But over the last five years, that speed has, has really morphed into speed of deployment. So it's the speed of which you can get that MVP out to your uh, clinical and business partners so that they can then uh, gain a competitive advantage over the folks that they're competing with. Um, and then finally, those three things uh, stability, security, speed, all built on a foundation of simplicity.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so the, the simpler you can make things, the more stable you can make them, the more secure you can make them, and the faster you can get them deployed. So as we're working, as I uh, as we're working along, and in, in, in previous locations, you know, I'd, I'd ask my folks, "Hey, what are you working on?" Ah, I'm working on stability. I'm working on stability. Really? Is there a way that you can work on simplicity and affect stability? Because if you work on simplicity, not only do you affect stability, but you also affect your security and your speed to deployment. So that's, I think, that's the new way. And Gartner's new model for IoT uh, OT deployments would show yeah. that it's. The, you got a trigger event, and then a design, a POC, scale, uh, no, stabilize and scale. That's the that's the way IT has to be nowadays. Wow, so making things simple is actually—it's very complicated making things simple.
1: So it is, <laughs> which is the irony of all that. But uh, but yeah, let's jump into open discussion. We got a couple of big topics that are happening here. Things that are people uh, really, really talking about all over the place. And that we touched a little bit uh, from Sandy is the impact on AI and healthcare. Um, and a lot of things are happening. It's it's little things from improved scheduling, like optimizing scheduling, optimizing rev cycle, to decision support in patient care. Um, who wants to jump in on this and, and talk about what they're seeing?
2: So. Yeah, so we're doing that as we speak. Uh, a lot of folks likes to focus primarily on clinical. That's the hardest thing, right? You tell a doctor, hey, trust the machine because you went to school for eight years. Now trust the machine to tell you what to do. That's the hardest part. I think we have to fix the education piece. So I'd rather not focus on the clinical side. I like how you mentioned revenue cycle, scheduling. Those are the easy areas to focus and utilize AI and machine learning, right? So when we think about the back-end coders, they should be able to use AI to put together the right code for the bill. They shouldn't have to touch the bill. It should just be automated and then spit it out to the insurance carrier to get reimbursement. And hopefully it's an accurate bill so you get paid faster. So that's where I like to focus AI on the back-end processing. while we're still understanding the clinical area, it's important that the traction may not be there. And that's why the speed of adoption takes a little bit longer because we're focusing on the clinical rather than some of the other backend automated functions. David, do you have,
0: are you hiring data scientists in your IT organization?
2: We have a research department that's hiring data scientists, um, mm-hmm. but it's the hardest role to fill, and how do you quantify what a data scientist really is? I think that's where our challenge is, that, that talent gap and really understand what do we really want to do? Because you bring it on board, you may, you, I think given the job description, what do you want the problem you want to solve? That, that's a hard part as well. So we're still maturing in that area. I haven't seen too many organizations like Sandy's that are as mature in yeah. terms of this data scientist field.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because <clears throat> my group is very often approached by clinicians where the story starts out, if we can just use, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, a neural network to project this value forward, we'll be able to fundamentally change the way we, we practice care. And we wind up consistently getting really excited about that.
0: Yeah, sounds pretty amazing.
3: Yeah. And then, and then, but what happens is we dive in with the group. And what we find is the care delivery process is typically so messed up, you know, initially, <laughs> that it doesn't require, I mean, it could be the best in the world, and it's still messed up. And, and it's it doesn't require necessarily machine learning. Machine learning always has... You can always see the place where it will help, but really often the optimization winds up being about looking at where algorithms, short of machine learning can be interjected and looking at how work can be moved. So very often we start out focused on how we can help clinicians and in a way somewhat similar to what David was saying, we often wind up looking at how we can help somebody else make decisions, that they can either make more frequently than, than clinicians could make and therefore improve care, or decisions that actually aren't being made that are happening randomly. You know, choosing the oldest bag of platelets from our platelet inventory as opposed to the bag that would best match the patient. You know, working with navigators to enable them at much higher frequency to like titrate heart failure drugs. You know, looking at other interventions in the, the broader process that, that could really make a difference. And then I think that those interventions are what's going to yield the data that will enable us to do greater amounts of machine learning. Although I would say, independent from all of that, is all of the stuff that's happening in imaging, and you know, and yeah. it does. Seem like there's a lot of exciting stuff happening.
1: I won't say who but uh, there was a, it was a healthcare system that applied machine learning uh, to some of the clinical processes. And the result was they had learned all the bad processes and had aggregated them in terms of all the, all the bad behaviors the physicians were making. Yeah, <laughs> they had the best practices of bad behaviors.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's really important to understand yeah. this is about, this has to be about process transformation. Yes. And, and, and that's the core goal that you're trying to achieve. It's not applying a tool. Yes. Wes, anything on your end? um you know we have a tendency
4: mm, squirrel uh, you know AI and ml <laughs> we we've, we've what happened to RPA what about robotic process automation there's so much room yep. in healthcare right now for just the simple step of RPA yep. and then go from RPA to ml and then let's go from RPA and ml to AI but for some reason, we want to dive right into the great big AI pool, and I'm not sure we've learned how to swim well enough yet, frankly. It's okay. We already forgot about big
1: data. So <laughs> okay, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, but, but as we heard, it's just removing obstacles and increasing frequency. Maybe the little data that can help us vastly improve uh, before we jump into the ocean of big data.
4: Right, right. Back to the back to the stuff you can do with the little bitty data with RPA. You I bet every health system could probably increase their efficiency by 20% just with RPA.
1: Yeah, there's so much upside on the RPA side. And uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: But this this notion of simplicity that brings you speed and stabilization and and uh, and, and security improvements, um, do we need more design thinkers? Do we need more liberal arts? Do we need people that can think like a customer helping us optimize the workflows and really get us to think about the user experience and speed before we deep dive into like big data and scientists and machine learning and so on and so forth? How much room is there today by just observing existing processes and making incremental improvements where over time you can vastly improve the, the, the user experience? Is, is is that is that something that's... Oh yeah,
4: that's that's uh, I mean that that's innovation. <laughs> that that's innovation right there, Val. I mean, it's not it's not uh, you know it's not um, breakthrough innovation. It's incremental innovation. All those little steps, you know, they add up to to big steps later on. And and, and we're Americans, so we, we like to take the you know the big home run ball, uh, but you know. You get just as many runs hitting uh, hitting uh, base hits uh, as you do going for the home run, and I think we can get squirreled. I mean, healthcare can get squirreled pretty easy. Uh, big data, back to your point, Ray, um, but but the ones I think that have a uh, you know I'll, I'll reference back to Seattle Children's that that has a real management philosophy of lean, and, and they don't go squirreled as much as other folks because. They realize that you know, it, it's, the, it's the rabbit and the hare. Uh, you know, no, that's the same thing. It's the <laughs> rabbit and the tortoise. <laughs> uh, you know, they don't mind being the tortoise because uh, they know they'll get there. And I think oh. that's, that's more of a mentality that we have to take, but I say that on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm not sure we have that luxury anymore. We may have to be swinging for the fences now because of the out, outside, the external pressures that are forcing us to change. So we may yeah. have to send Casey up to bat.
0: Wait till Amazon gets into your space. <laughs> you can't afford to think small anymore. Yeah. Wow. You know,
3: I'm not sure it's an either or actually. Hmm. I, I feel like what the, this whole movement towards the, the big change has to take the form of clinical process by clinical process you know, changes where the way that I think of these, this, this IT component is it's, it's essentially IT interventions that enable processes to change in the way that you want them to. And I absolutely do think that one of the constraints, I mean, you do often need data scientists for that. You definitely need programmers for that, et cetera. But I do think one of the real limited resources is the, the, the design capability where for some very very small changes you don't need a significant you know design capability but but once you're trying to affect the 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 process flow particularly yeah. critical process flow of a larger number of users you really need ux people involved to make sure that's safe You know, that's a great Mm -hmm. point. You guys are all touching upon uh, the shift.
1: I mean, in the past, we actually optimized for uh, the care provider inside the hospitals. And today we're actually optimizing for patient-centric experiences. Um, As we think about that, it sounds like there's processes that have to be redesigned, uh, whether it's, you know, from the billing experience to the actual delivery of care um, it's, it's a great point to start here where, where do you see um, that patient-centric experience coming is, is it is it happening or are we still optimizing for physicians or is that a place where we can actually start those design thinking uh, exercises
2: yeah it's happening you know what the problem is you, a lot of organizations don't have the culture that's thinking that way so we go back to innovation You have got to have the right culture that's thinking innovatively and That is the hardest part, right? I mean, Bala talked about this Amazon effect. Amazon was working with a few health systems to try to get in to be their supply chain provider. Who's got the best supply chain in the world? Amazon. But somehow all these traditional healthcare leaders, I'm talking about the top leaders that decide, say, well, you know, Amazon, you don't know healthcare as much as we do. So therefore they shut them out. So that comes down to, you got to have the right culture and people that understand this uh, sort of innovation to make that change in the workforce, because without that, it's extremely difficult. And that's what I am seeing. I'm seeing the, the the culture is talks about it, but we're not really embracing. So when we talk about are we really patient centric, we talk about it. But if you look at how many contracts that we have with the payers are purely at risk, still a very small majority. Everyone's still fee for service. So this whole discussion about moving towards population health, it's probably happening, but it's happening at slower rate than you think because if you just look at your current organization. How much of your contract percentage is really focused on population health and at risk? I bet you it's less than 50%. So if that's the case, how much are you focusing on the patient right now? Still less than 50%. Wow. David,
0: you heard uh, Wes in his cocktail uh, recipe mentioned companies. Um, some may be public, some may be startups. Do you work with startups? Do you invite startups? And if a, I'm a startup founder CEO and I'm coming to Mercy Hospital, I'm pitching to you my solutions. What do you want me to tell you? What, what are you looking for? To, in order to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you a shot, even though you're not perhaps a proven you know entity.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm definitely listening. I think Wes is one of the, the only CTO, I would say, in the healthcare industry that I, I would say I want to hire because I've gone <laughs> through a lot of them. And they all come back and they tell you your cloud first, they're, you know, they're mobile first, but when you come to execution, they're more risk averse than some of the engineers. <laughs> so when we go back to startups, you know I am listening to them. I am listening to how their solution solves a problem the challenge is a lot of them don't have the use case so you have to take a big risk yourself to trust a startup to help you take you to the next level and I rely on folks like Wes and Sandy to provide references so definitely I do listen to startups but also the pitch has to be number one tell me how you're going to solve my problem because you have to know my problem you have to know my specific problem with versus a generic pitch and number two is you know Get yourself out there. Get the West Rites and the Sandies to see your solution because when we as a group sort of can vouch for it, it goes a really long way. So that's my recommendation for start. And, but I do listen to them all the time. I do hear about what's going on. but There's a big security gap.
0: Security and scale. Are they are you asking them to demonstrate to you security and scale capabilities and your engineers assess their capabilities? Is it a proof of concept or is it really come from assessment from the network? And once you trust the network, you trust you trust the, the, you know, the potential vendor.
2: I prefer the network, because I hate this proof of concept or ordeal. And because it doesn't test much. You test the proof of concept, you have a small pilot, but it's not gonna tell you the big picture. And what what I see happen is we we love pilots. I mean, IT folks, engineers, they love to go through this proof of concept. They could spend eight months going through proof of concept and then you ask them what happened. Oh, well, it didn't meet our needs. That means you wasted eight months. So I'd rather hear from the community that this works, I will make the tough call and gamble that this is going to work based on what my peers recommend, and then we move forward with a full-blown solution. Because I've seen the sort of, when you go through this proof of concept, it just takes too long. And what happens if the organization gets hurt? I would love to hear what Weston and Sandy think about this proof of concept <laughs> ordeal.
4: Well, it's back to the QS4, you know, it it, it that proof of, proof of concept, and it's not... It, your POC is really just a start. If the POC is successful, then, it, then the next step is scale. But too often in healthcare, POC is, yeah, we did a POC. No, you're doing a POC so you can scale. That's the problem that we run into with a lot of the older engineers that we have is they have a, a definition of what a POC is. A POC is to see if this will work. Now, nah, kind of the new definition is, Let's see if this is, this will work and what it takes to scale it out. Whereas before it was just a let's see if it works, but now, at least where where I've worked, it's yeah you do the POC and part of the POC is how are we going to scale this.
3: <laughs> wow, we've, we've we've adopted a culture that's that's really focused on MVPs, and I think that I think we're all kind of th- saying the same thing here, where You know, we need to, we we understand our objective, which often does involve scale, both inside and outside of the organization. But the core to getting started is identifying that minimal viable product that will demonstrate value. And I would say in my specific area, it is a little harder to work with startups. What we're finding is that, you know, everyone recognizes that there's a major shift going on there's there's a lot of positioning as you know as the healthcare value chain you know begins to flex a little bit lots of organizations are trying to figure out how they reposition themselves relative to that and just it's it's easier to work with larger companies than smaller companies in that context but in a situation where so so it raises the bar for smaller companies but it still remains the case that that truly innovative smaller company can make a huge difference um, wow, we've also seen the shift from MVP to MAP, which is from
1: minimum viable product to minimum awesome product. So <laughs> yeah. there, there's a shift, uh, so <laughs> there's some, there's some movement around there. Let's take one of those uh, things that have kind of been sitting out there, EMRs, right? Uh, mixed blessing on EMRs. Have EMRs been worth their investment or not? Right? They they were designed in the Affordable Care Act to like digitize healthcare, transform the way data sets are collected, I mean, what's the verdict today?
2: All right. So this is tough. I mean, the, when I think about EMRs, so I'll put on what I thought about when I worked for a for-profit system. I mean, we're, when, I, for, when, I, when, I was, when I was a for-profit, we would never spend hundreds of millions on EMR because think about how many patients you have to see in order to make that up. But when I go in a for-profit, with the nonprofit world, we spend hundreds, some spend a billion with a B yes. on EMR. And that's it, it, that's hard for me to swallow if I was an investor, where I'm gonna spend a billion on EMR. I think the new way of thinking about using these systems is EMR does help you operationalize it, but you could figure out how to cap, you know, capture the data to be more efficient. You don't need to have a full-blown EMR. So if you're on a full-blown acquisition spree as where healthcare is moving towards tons of merging acquisition, you don't have to really focus on getting to the, this consolidated EMR. Because you can spend a fortune. Think about how you keep the individual hospitals operating independently and then put a layer over the top to centralize. You don't have to go through that step. So, that's my view on EMR. I think it helps you with operations to get the ground running. But when you look at it from enterprise scale, it's probably not made out to be that end to end solution. Even though they're designing it now to be, it's hard for me to swallow. It was my own money to spend these hundreds of. And come on, Don't
1: you like spending quarter million dollars on button changes for these mumps-based systems? <laughs> <laughs> Mumps. come I won't on, name come any, on. I won't name any vendors. <laughs>
3: but, but, you know, I cannot agree yeah. with David more more strongly on this. I feel that so coming from a system that spent, you know, in the B range, you know, for <laughs> you know, EMR, I think I think that it is a very important step. It provides a baseline of data, it provides a baseline, you know infrastructure starting point for, um, for capabilities. But really, it's, it didn't deliver on you know, everything that it was envisioned to deliver on. And exactly as David said, adding that additional layer on top of it that enables like, true innovation and extensions. And again, I think that tends to have to be clinical area specific. I think now does create an environment where there's an ex- extreme potential To to fundamentally alter and improve care. And I do think that as this comes into being, and it's just Mm. starting to come into being now, that it's incumbent on all of us to really think about how this needs to be formulated, primarily from a business model perspective, Mm. in order for it to help the most patients. And I think that that really comes down to people spending the time to think about how to build this out, which is incredibly expensive, using open business models. Which, in my view, are they are more complex. I think they have greater potential for profitability, but they also will just fundamentally enable much more um, innovation and evolution of the care delivery process if we can force them to happen. Wes, yeah, it um, looks like you're in deep thought.
4: <laughs> I was considering whether I was going to take a nap at two or three. <laughs> um, you know, I think they had their place. Uh, I think we've tried to make them more than what they are. Um, mm-hmm. They are, they should be kind of a transactional system. Kind of think of it as a, a cash register for healthcare, just keeping track of what we've done that that's all that's all really the the e m r is supposed was originally meant to be was just to keep track of what we've done so we can document what we've done in the record we have tried to push the e m r way further than that because it has all the data in there it it's become an, uh in lean talk what you call a monument monuments are bad you can't move monuments you have to work with monuments in any way you can so a lot of the more progressive healthcare systems are, going, are really realizing, look, that's a transaction system. My EHR is a transaction system. If I want to get the value out of it that Sandy and David were talking about, I'm gonna to have to pull those transactions out somewhere else and have something else look at those. Because again, this is a monument. And by the way, I posted something on LinkedIn uh, a while ago. The number one inhibitor for all corporations for digital transformation, it's their legacy software applications that are monuments. The reference that they used was sorry about their ERP systems. Uh, that because of the ERP systems, a lot of these companies can't digitally transform. I think if you think instead of uh, ERP system, if you think EHR instead of EPR, ERP. Uh, you'll find that uh, a lot of the stuff keeping us healthcare from digitally transforming are the monuments of the old applications that we have. Charge Master. am no, just kidding. <laughs> I heard something from uh, Neil, the worldwide head of uh, Microsoft's healthcare, probably about eight months ago. He was I was in a meeting with him, and it's small. Say, so, yeah, I just got back from South America. And in South America, either Uh either Brazil had an EHR and Venezuela bought it, or Venezuela had one and Brazil bought it. But either way, a country deployed nationally an EHR for three million dollars. Wow. That's the kind of you know as you as you reference, Ray, we've got the you know, it costs a quarter of a million dollars to move the bump the mumps thing. (laughs) Because we don't have any we don't have any new for lack of better term. Uh, new code developed, no cloud-based. And I was hoping Athena might go this way, but we don't have a cloud-based easy install EHR system that's just made for transactions. And I think that's what they put up in Venezuela and Brazil, one of them.
0: How much right, yeah, more volunteer. incremental innovation we need on top of just a really good CRM solution to deal with these transactions? <laughs> <laughs> more <transactional laughs> that's a, that's another show.
2: That's another uh, show. Think about this from a, just a leadership perspective, right? You're a CEO walking into an organization. All your competitors have an EMR and they spend hundreds of millions and billions. Are you brave enough to be that one guy who says, no, 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 I don't believe it. I'm going to go a different route and build what we have talked about. No one's brave enough to do that. And Come no on. one stick it in no, no one the Lotus the cloud. Right? You're messing my retirement. I'm gonna be <laughs> retired in five years. You're, you're breaking my flow. But that's what's happening. No one's brave enough to do that. Therefore, we still follow that traditional track. And that's, and that's mm-hmm. the biggest hurdle because everyone's following the playbook that someone else developed and it may not be the best playbook, but we know it kind of works mm-hmm. and it's good enough to not stand out as someone else who didn't do that.
3: So,
0: no. okay. so then go ahead. Go ahead. One
3: so area that I think we can really learn from is what happened in the genetics and genomics space, the clinical genetics and genomics space, because that's a space as it developed where there was no EHR support, right? And at the same time, there was a reasonable amount of of, of economics in the space that allowed the development of IT support. And what we wound up with, and as far as I'm aware, that's the only place that we've wound up with it, is continuous learning infrastructure, where you have learning that occurs through the clinical flow that is fed back so that it affects not only future patients, but previous patients, genetic variants have been identified. And I think there's, I think there's real lessons that we can take from that as we attempt to try to figure out, you know, how to build Again, that layer that David was talking about on top of the EHR to take us to the next level, get beyond that stuff.
1: Yeah, we we actually believe this thing with transactional systems that, and as Wes was saying as well, they they stay as transactional systems. There's another whole layer of engagement that's occurred. That was the social layer, and they stay there as well. And there's a whole other layer that's around experience that stays as they are. There's something I put into HBR a long time ago from transactions to engagement, and it kind of shows you that flow. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we're building layers on top of each other. And so I I think I may have said this to you guys in in Las Vegas in May, um, this concept of infinite ambient orchestration, right, where microservices, right, we're talking about small microservices that are intention driven, we break it down to those levels that are reused, Um, they're ambient in the sense that it's next best action being fed into these systems, and it's orchestration, because we're pulling from those different experiences right, to actually create something new. And so I think that's kind of what's happening as people are p- putting that together. But but yeah, everyone's trying to force fit their EMR or their ERP or their transactional systems into another layer that doesn't really belong there. It's actually making it even more complicated. Um, yeah. and we're seeing a lot of folks suffering from that.
0: I-A-O, Infinite Ambient Orchestration. Okay, I have to remember that, right. it's, it's <laughs> I got to give it an acronym so I can remember. So Wes mentioned technical debt and monuments as uh, maybe the biggest challenge... Uh, or blocker of digital transformation, but where does talent fit in? Where does talent fit in? I mean, if it's culture, people, process, technology, in terms of orders for critical success factor to, to change, are you guys uh, able, where do you go to get the best and brightest to join your teams? How do you how do you attract, you know, whether it's college graduates who've been taking machine learning courses at Stanford at freshman year um, to, to reskilling your existing employees to potentially new roles within your organization. Uh, David, how do you get talent to join Mercer?
2: I steal them. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's pretty directive about that Did one. You know, there you go. Yeah. Is it but your big I budget mean, that allows you to do that? How, how do you do so that? I'm in for pretty fortunate where we do have a uh, sort of, from, from, a, from a salary perspective, we're pretty extremely competitive, but I awesome. do have a big EMR vendor down the road that I steal from which works down sure. both ways, right? I mean, um, we learn more about their products than anyone else in the region. In return, they have to me the best resource because they do a great job of grooming them. My challenge is, yes, I have a lot of legacy debt, and I believe I could leapfrog the, this legacy structure. But with, with, the, with the workforce, I need to figure out how to get there faster. So I'm yeah. going to have to poach from a group that can develop talent just because I can't do it well enough. At the end of the day we are still in a hospital operation where technology is not our bread and butter developing software is not our bread and butter I view our role as system integrators integrating all the various systems to help the organization be efficient and we're just not there to be where we could develop stuff ground from end to end, even from a talent perspective
1: but there's great talent
4: in north kansas city that's all David's saying
2: sarner's <laughs> <laughs> <there's> got great
1: some <laughs> no that's wonderful
4: i don't actually think it's a talent issue i don't think it's a talent issue at all i think it's what what david said Uh, a couple things david said it's the it's first leadership courage uh, and second its culture Uh, and that the talent comes to that uh you don't you don't have to attract the talent if if you're if you're blazing a path that makes sense makes logical sense to you, it's gonna make logical sense to a lot of other people and they're gonna to wanna to be part of that. And if you continue along that honorable path, I guess for lack of a better term, then you'll have honorable people that want to join you. So I don't I've I've never had fortunately when I fell into Sutter, I fell into the deepest talent pool I've ever experienced before. But I've never had a problem attracting talent when you're doing the right thing, they want to. They want to come do it with you. Um, that makes yeah, sense. I've missed out on a few here and there, but you know, it's a it's a leadership, courage, and a culture issue. Way, way, way before it's a talent issue.
3: Great. Yeah. When um, so so I agree with with everything Wes and 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 David just said. Um, you know, a lot of the talent we go after here comes from other industries. And um, and 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 here's my typical conversation with them. So if you come here, you're going to take a massive pay cut. You are likely going to see far smaller raises over time than you would see where 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 you're currently at. And you need to think about this really, really carefully. And the reason why is because once you get here, we are going to give you incredibly meaningful work. And once you've experienced incredibly meaningful work, you are not going to be able to leave. So these this pay cut and this lower rate of raises, it's going to persist. So so think about it before you come in. And and, oh, and that seems to attract people. That's
0: pretty that's pretty awesome. It's radical transparency. I love it. Uh, I thought I was
3: transparent. Holy cow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. What a delicious paradox. You're not going to have a lot of money ever again, but
2: you're used to it.
0: Mondays and Fridays are going to feel the same for you because you're doing meaningful work. I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. He's calling it like it is. All right, well, let's let's get to a
1: lightning round real quick. Um uh, let's just talk about uh, just real quick. I mean, people that inspired you, mentors, uh people that that got you um you know, inspired to to think about your work your leadership approach uh, differently so right down the line david
2: so my my first mentor was someone named dr jonathan who first asian american hospital owner in southern california who sort of mentored me and he just told me david just learn the hospital operations forget about technology once you understand the the bread and butter of the operation your technology is going to fit so i've always taken that awesome wow
4: wes you're in um. Let's see, uh, a couple. Uh, from a health IT perspective, I've always uh, been mentored by uh, Drexka Ford, so he's he's uh, uh, done a lot for me. Uh, from a leadership perspective, I had the uh, fortune to be the executive officer for the Air Force Certain Generals uh, for a year, so I got to hang around with him and be on his right side for an entire year. Uh, and... The philosophies that he has, the biggest one um, is trusts. You know, he, he told me coming out of a meeting some some one time, he said, Wes, I don't know why everybody thinks uh, they have to earn my trust. I give my trust to everybody, uh, and they have to take it away. It's a much better way to live. And he told me that in 2000, and I've been trying to live that way my whole life. And it's really, I think, affected the way I do live. So. Uh, from a leadership perspective, Lieutenant General Carleton, and from a HIT perspective, Drax DeFord. Hands off to them, Sandy.
3: Yeah, I've had so many mentors that both I've worked for, interacted with, or who have worked for me that it's hard for me to it's it's hard for me to call out one. But I do. If I had to synthesize what, what I feel I've learned from them, it's to think deeply about the decisions that you make and to make them based on what you feel you'll be proud of in the future. So, to, to, to really optimize based on the ethics of what you're doing, if you do that, everything will be okay. Did
0: our- I get to answer this way? Yeah, go for it, Bob. You?
2: Me? No. <laughs> yeah. no, no, I'm the you
0: you're, you're the reason I'm at Salesforce. So, so anyway, um, that wow. was my lightning round. Wow. Always a good I guess, uh,
1: Wow. I, I guess my last lightning round was really, uh, other than other than France, uh, who's in the quarters for the World Cup?
0: <laughs> <laughs> than- I lost track of this one. Yeah, me too. I-, I-, I need to get the Brazil score before I make my prediction. <laughs> uh, Belgium 2-0 at the moment. Oh,
1: um, no way! No yes, way. Belgium 2-0. Wow. So, uh, Belgium or Brazil? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, my, 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 my question to you, uh, I, I, I think, Sandy, you talked about, looking at other industries. What are the industries do you guys look at for inspiration in terms of emerging tech, innovation, new business model? Is it retail, finance, manufacturing, education? Where do you look? Where do you look outside of healthcare?
3: You know, I get a great deal, I'd say two different places. I mean, I do find that watching what's happening at the big, you know, sort of internet giants um, is, is, is very helpful. But the other thing is, and, and it's within healthcare, but it's it's different kinds of organizations than providers. I do think that everyone is trying to figure out how they forward and backwards integrate into the clinical process. In many instances to try to disrupt provider business, right? So, So trying to understand that I think is the key to trying to understand where
0: things are going. Makes sense. David.
2: I love the retail model. I love the fact that they get into people's feelings and allow them to make a decision or influence a decision. So I try to learn from that and transform that into healthcare because we want to help a clinician feel the sympathy of a patient. We want, we want, them, we want the patients to change their behavior to be healthier. So all in all, I, that's why I focus a lot on healthcare. I mean, Lots on the retail of innovation
0: side. happening there. Lots of innovation happening there. Yeah. Wes? Um, Silicon
2: Valley
4: in Seattle. Um, I like the, I like to watch the tech startups. I think they, they, you know, they got to survive. So they come up with some really unique ways to survive. So, you know, the more of those survival, uh, survival arrows I can put in my quiver, the the better off I'm going to be. So they just, they make you think differently. So I like hanging out with them.
0: Absolutely. VC startups, you know, some of our most entertaining, most insightful guests on Disrupt TV are yeah. startup founders and VCs. So I agree with you 100%. In okay, fact, going next to jump week in we have one, one extraordinary. one extraordinary. actually
1: seeing the most innovation in is, is actually nonprofits. Um, and mm. I don't know what's happening over there, but we're, we're seeing it's not just in how they recruit in terms of teams, uh, but also how they deploy very, very light technologies uh, to get some stuff done. So, but yeah.
4: Well it's, it's like Sandy was saying before, I, you know, again, one of my great lean mentors, Pat Hagan at Seattle Children's, he said, you know, scarcity breeds invention, and that's exactly what Sandy was talking about at the beginning of the show. The Absolutely. Mother of all invention. Well, hey, this
1: has been awesome. We've got the Ultimate Healthcare Panel. I'm sure we're going to get more people on here in the future, but we've been here with David Cho, VP and CIO, CDO, Children's Mercy, Kansas City. You can follow him at DCHOU1107. And Sandy Aronson, Executive Director of Information Technology at Partners Healthcare, Personalized Medicine. You can follow him at Sandy Aronson, A R O N S O N. And Wes Wright, All Star CTO and now CTO at Improvada at Wes Wright19. Uh, And this is our all-star panel, episode number one, one, two, the healthcare panel now over happy Friday. And thanks for being on the show, everybody. Thanks
0: everyone. Yep. Go Hawks. (laughs) God. <laughs> See you in the NBA Finals, David Chow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We've got
1: an awesome episode 113. This is like the uh, the, the, the capital exhibition of VC. What's going on with these guys? What do we, we have, have on show next week?
0: We have two VC icons. Uh, Michael Scott, founding partner and co-founder of Underscore VC, And he's bringing Richard DeLude, principal and investment manager at Underscore VC. They just did a major blockchain research study, 4,000 respondents. We'll talk a little bit about that. Carla Freed, CEO, co-founder of Invoice Pay, will be joining us as well. And uh, First Ballot Hall of Fame Disrupt TV inductee, Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz Group. And she's always an extraordinary mind, business leadership innovation uh, guest on our show. So next Friday is going to be amazing. Uh, Any final comments? This new format is uh, super challenging for (laughs) (laughs) co-hosts. Man, you got to have your A game on the whole time.
1: No, no, we're like we, we this this open forum is one one format we like. Uh, we can go back to the twenty minute uh, each individual, and and I think we can do like the Jay Leno's couch where you just bring people and keep adding them on, or like the old Tonight Show approach, which would be fun. <laughs> but it's crazy. So, it really
0: is. It really is.
1: But hey, any final words on your end, Vala? It's it's Friday. It's July. What what's what are you thinking? What's going on? Next? Listen, Ray. I don't
0: know. You, you you at some point you're gonna have to you know get the cat let the cat out of the bag. You got some breaking news happening for a December event. I just, you know, at some point when you're comfortable, uh, our audience would love to hear about it. There's some, obviously the October event at CCE is going to be amazing. uh, And I'm looking forward to learning from three, four, five hundred of the best and brightest business leaders in the world. Uh, But then again, you're following up a couple of months after that. Which may, which may be the greatest event I've ever been a part of. <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> so, but we'll leave that to uh, when you're ready. To told run. December 10th, just December know it's a 10th.
1: special day, look it up on Wikipedia. Those okay. parties are involved and uh, it's something that's about changing the future. So uh, we'll, we'll leave you with those teasers for now.
0: So, look up December 10th and I'll tell you, whomever comes up at next Friday's show and can tell us what they think this event is about. We'll maybe put them live on, on the show and, and get a sense of how they found out. So yeah. uh, we're going to put a little, uh, what does Elon Musk say when he puts a little goodie treat in the... In an the Easter
1: egg. We won't drop an Easter, Easter egg. Easter
0: egg. There's an Easter egg. This, well, December 10th is the event. Let's see if you can find out what it's all about. But uh, <laughs> if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next week.
2: Take care, everyone. Bye.